Well, welcome to the Hunt Backcountry podcast and the continuation of our podcast series, How to Hunt Mule Deer. The topic today is shooting, and specifically archery. If you're hunting mule deer with a bow, there's some unique challenges to shooting, given the country that mule deer inhabit, and some of the distances, angles, and conditions that you might find yourself shooting in. We wanted to speak about this topic with Tim Gillingham. If you're not familiar with Tim, he is a longtime archer, both on the tournament and target side, as well as a passionate hunter. Tim also works in the industry directly for some archery companies and has consulted for many others, and he is just a wealth of knowledge. We're excited to get Tim on the podcast and take this deep dive. We certainly hit the ground running in this show, so buckle up. It moves fast. There's a lot in this show to cover, and a lot that's just thought-provoking. Like Some of the paradigms I had in my head have been questioned and potentially changed. I'm excited to take some of the things that Tim said and put them into practice, do some of my own investigation, and see how it works for me. Before we dive into that, I wanted to thank Matthew Bart for the review on the podcast. Matt, send us your shipping address to podcast at exomountaingear.com. We will send you some Exo Mountain Gear and Hunt Backcountry podcast swag. And listeners, if you want to enter into these giveaways, it's really simple. Just leave us a review in iTunes, Stitcher, wherever else you're listening to this. Or you can also contact us directly with your questions or comments to podcast at exomountaingear.com. Guys, hope you've been enjoying the series on how to hunt mule deer. We're excited to talk today about shooting, specifically with a bow, and those unique challenges. Let's get going with Tim Gillingham. Tim, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, we were, uh, you know, we put this series together on hunting mule deer and we're essentially breaking down how to hunt mule deer A to Z and have done the specific episodes on scouting and locating and stalking. And when it came time to shooting and specifically on the archery side, like you came to mind immediately in terms of really diving into uh, archery and some of the situations that are unique about mule deer hunting in terms of looking at the demands of shooting at angles and distances and wind and some of the things that can come into play, uh, with hunting mule deer with a bow. So we're excited to dive into that with you. Yeah, those are definitely the challenges, you know, and, you know, I, it, it, you know, I've been, I've hunted all over the, you know, I lived in Alaska, like we previous talked for 10 years and grew up in Wyoming and now I live in Utah and every year I hunt, oh, usually mule deer here and over, I've been hunting over Nebraska too. Mm-hmm. As I get older, I like that flat land, that flat land, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you say that because literally this morning I got an email from a listener. We had done a series on, uh, like I said, both preseason scouting, boots on the ground scouting, glassing and locating. And it was, you know, primarily in a, a mountain context, but this listener was from Nebraska, um, or sorry, was planning to hunt to Nebraska for the first time and was asking us about scouting and locating mule deer in Nebraska, uh, which Steve and I have not done um, since you brought it up, just like a quick primer on how would you help this guy like identify good mule deer country in a state like Nebraska where you're not dealing with this big mountainous terrain and some of the more obvious features there? Well, Nebraska is really unique. As you drive across, it looks perfectly flat. 
Um, but what it is is you have just tons of cropland, and then you have what what they over there they call them pastures, and pastures are these these deep coolies. I mean, you run into the same situation, the same types of shots. You know, I I've got six muleys on the wall from Alaska or from Nebraska, and uh, I think I was added up the other day and. All of them are shot long range, pretty much. I think the shortest, I think the shortest one I shot was close to 80 yards. Wow. And so the challenge is, you know, the biggest challenge in Nebraska is private land. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, where I hunt is almost, it's all exclusive, almost exclusively private land. There are areas, I think, in the north northwestern section of Nebraska where there is some more, you know, public you know, areas, but that that's going to be the truly biggest challenge. Now I ran into a guy over there last year. Who's just, he's got the most impressive mealy trophy room with a bow that I've ever seen in my life. And, uh, I, I put a little shout on him out to him on Facebook. And within a day, he's like, dude, can you take that down? He said, people are beating me up. So, <laughs> so I mean, this guy, and they'll tell you, they, they spend, 60, 70,000 miles a year on their trucks running around locating mule deer. And then they'll, they'll spend the rest of the time trying to get permission to go hunt them. Mm. And, uh, oh, people are a little bit more receptive to bow hunters cause they don't think bow hunters kill anything. I think, and, <laughs> um, the guy I hunt with, you know, he's lived there his whole life. So he knows a lot of people and, but you know, that people are fairly protective of their, their good hunting ground over there. I mean, Nebraska's, big time hunting state i think south dakota is another dead ringer north dakota got some monsters yeah so yeah. and they have a lot more same type of terrain i believe it's just you know it's just you gotta you know we go over there in the rut mainly it's right. uh you know i've never hunted over there not in the rut really so but you're just you're just watching same as anything else you're just watching them go to bed or trying to get ahead of them or watch them drop in a coolie and, you know, trying to, trying to get a play on them. But yeah. usually the shooting's fast, you know, the, the shooting's fast, you know, there's never that perfectly controlled situation where you have uh, all the time in the world to range it, set your sight and make that perfect backyard shot. That almost doesn't ever exist. And that's why it's one of the reasons I fight these heavy FOC, heavy arrow guys that are floating around the internet right now. It just drives me nuts. <laughs> because they, in, in that type in the type of hind situations that i've had my entire life the number one problem i have is how far is it right you tell me how far it is i, I can kill it mm-hmm. but the problem is this the hunting situation is so fluid you range them it moves they range them it moves you move they range you know that you don't always have the exact yardage and when you're talking you know having to make shots over 70 80 yards or, or further man i'll tell you what the difference between you know, shooting, you know, 290 to 310 foot a second versus 250, 260 is just night and day. Number right. one, you couldn't even reach that if you were shooting too slow. Mm-hmm. And my, my only value in heavy arrows, you know, when I say heavy, I've killed mill deer and shot completely through them at 120 yards with a 380 grain arrow with a mechanical broadhead. So, if you want to do the kinetic energy calculations, I mean, I might have had 50 foot pounds by the time I hit the deer. The point is, is it's the, the arrow flight's so good at that distance. Virtually all animals I've shot over 80 yards are complete pass-throughs. 
it's because their flight so perfect on the arrow that it's, the energy transfer is just dead down the middle of the shaft. Is that just because you know, time and air allows it to stabilize? Exactly. That's the importance of a well-tuned bow. That's the importance of an arrow that stabilizes very quickly. It's the importance of a stiffer arrow because a stiffer arrow is going to correct faster. It's going to penetrate better. It's not going to lose its energy while it's penetrating. Um, but the value in heavy arrows to me, which which you know, there was a time I shot 80 pounds so that I could shoot a 500 grain arrow at 315 foot a second because it was a sledgehammer in the wind. I mean, you, I shot a deer over Nebraska with it, and it was a hell of a shot. It was, it was, it was way over, you know, it was a hundred and, uh, I probably shouldn't even say it, but <laughs> and it was over. Once you've gone over a hundred, it probably, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, people can't quantify it in their own mind. They they just think it's unethical, but they don't understand that, you know, with, with today's equipment and, and I shoot year round. Okay. I take the same care on my hunting equipment as I do my target equipment. And, and, and I can shoot groups at 120 yards with my broadheads that are five or six inches. I mean, I'm talking 10 shot groups. I'm not talking three shot groups. I'm not talking that's my best group. That's my average group. All right. You know, so, and, and to me, that's the most important part of the equipment. So, um, you know, and heavy arrows just, you know, when I threw down on that deer, the wind was blowing 25 mile an hour crosswind, but I just, you know, I've shot enough in the yard with wind and stuff just to be able to gauge that. And if you were shooting a real light arrow in that situation, you just don't know what you're going to get. If you're shooting a fixed blade, you damn sure don't know what you're going to get. Because, you know, in, in my mind, a fixed blade is a, is an ethical broadhead from about 70 yards and in after 70 it's just there's too many things that can go wrong the wind affects it three times as much your bad shots if people don't follow really strict you know regimens and as far as tuning their arrows and you know you can go look at mine on our gold tip youtube channel i put 11 video series up on tuning if you follow that you're not going to get any flyers but even doing that uh you know, fixed fixed blades are just more sensitive to to your mistakes and to the elements. Um, I pick my broadheads based on you know you know low blade surface area exposed and how am I going to practice with it. Mm, I like it. Plain yeah. yeah. Earlier, you mentioned you defaulted to two ninety to three hundred feet per second for a hunting arrow. Is that kind of your go to velocity for? <laughs> My personal go-to velocity is fast I can shoot. Uh, my problem is, is I'm a 33 and a half inch draw length, and there's no way in hell I'll get an arrow light enough to allow me to do that and still mm-hmm. stay stiff enough. Okay. I I would shoot, you know, one year I shot, I shot gold tip X cutters, which is a large diameter shaft. I don't know if you guys are familiar with those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. An X cutter, it's a 3D arrow. It's a 24, 25 diameter arrow. 25, and... and you know, it has a 48 grain insert. I think I threw a 20 grain weight screw behind it. So, you know, what a kill zone on the front of it. So I had, you know, I had 170 grains up front, which is quite a bit. That's just to slow that sucker down because it's a light shaft. It's 7.8 grains an inch. And man, I made some pretty killer shots that year on animals. So, <laughs> but you know, when you get that bigger arrow, it doesn't matter how much point weight you put up in front of it. At some point, it just is not going to perform like a small diameter arrow. It's just too much. There's too much surface area, just the same way there's too much surface area on a fixed blade versus, say, a thorn mechanical, okay? You just you just have to have so much control in the rear to 
you know, to keep control of the front. And at some point, it just doesn't matter what you try, how you try to control it. It's just not, it's just not conducive to the same type of accuracy that, you know, you're going to get out of a, you know, even like, you know, you want to compare bullets, you know, I mean, you can only do so much. I mean, BC is BC, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we, in order to make a, yeah, in order to get the same BC or the same wind characteristics out of a, you know, 50 cal and a, you know, a, I don't know, a 6.5 or something like that, or, you know, you're, it's just two different animals, you know, yeah. Yeah. you got a mass and bullet weight in order to do it. So and that means if you're going to shoot heavy, you got to shoot a lot of weight to get that heavy one up to speed, you know? Yeah. Would you, so in this series, I mean, we got guys tuning in all over the map in terms of their experience with mule deer. So guys who've, you know, in the Midwest and hunted whitetail and want to come out West and hunt mule deer. We got guys who have been hunting out West, but maybe just for elk and other critters. We got guys who have been mule deer hunters and are just trying to go to the next level. When it goes to shooting for mule deer archery, you know, I mentioned up front, like what came to my mind immediately in terms of some of the challenges that are maybe not unique to mule deer, but kind of amplified for mule deer hunting would be wind angles and distances. Is there anything else just like from a super high level that comes to mind on that list? Um, that's kind of unique or like I said, you know, highlighted, um, particularly for hunting mule deer. I mean, as far as the equipment goes, you know, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. I mean, a mule deer is not a white tail. It's not going to, not going to freak out of the arrow coming at it. Usually it'll stand there and take it like a champ, you know? Um, whereas if you shoot a real noisy setup on it, like a coos whitetail, I mean, coos are the ones that blow me away. I don't know how anybody hits them. The long, you know, but just like every deer is different, you know, as to mm -hmm. what they're going to take. A mule deer in a general rule will stand there and just take it like a champ. So for me, the number one problem at 99% of bow hunters are going to have in high country mule deer hunting or most mule deer hunting in general. And this is even, you know, Know, Kodiak deer or anything else is is knowing how to shoot slopes. Okay, mm -hmm. most guys, if you go around to the local 3D shooting stuff, these guys are shooting field points, and most of them, man, I I struggle to see how they can hit anything past 40 or 50 yards. And then when you start you start getting into that next guy, out west guys are a little bit more attuned, and, and they're shooting longer ranges, and their their idea of short range is 50 yards, and their idea of long range is 100. Um, or 80, uh, I've done a lot of work with slopes. Okay. I just spent 14 hours on the mountain Friday and or Saturday and Sunday or Friday and Sunday. I can't remember shooting in slopes for a tournament. I go shoot, uh, at bow fest here in, in two and a half weeks. And the way you win that is knowing cuts. Everybody thinks they buy these high speed range finders and they're going to give them the proper cut. And that is absolutely the furthest thing from the truth. They're closer, but they're damn sure not right. Can you elaborate on that? And I'll give, yeah, I'll give an example. Okay, I, I got my, I brought my cut charts in here just that I've shot in just to kind of give you an idea. Now I shoot all my cuts in at one speed because I know that if I change speed, it's going to change the cut. So how can the rangefinder possibly be right? Um, and and so, what you'll find is like, yeah, just real quick, Tim, when you say cut, you're just talking about like the angle compensated distance, right? Yeah, angle compensated distance. Most, so almost, I think every rangefinder on the market, except for the new one coming out from Leopold, has uses cosine for the cut. Okay, and cosine is not accurate, so they're basically giving you the same cut for uphill as they do downhill. 
Okay. If I go through and I'll just give you an example. Um, I've done these charts where um, so I got a downhill chart that I've shot in from 15 to 80 yards here. Um, 15 to 40, the rangefinder is dead on. When you get out to, you go from 50 to 80, it's about 1% off, okay? So 1% at 80 is, you know, it's only 0.8 of a yard, okay? If we drop down to 20 degrees and 80 yards, now that rangefinder cut is 2% off, okay? Now you're looking 1.6 yards, hmm. okay? We drop that, we drop it down to 30 degrees, and now you're 3% off. Now you're looking 2.4 yards off. Then we flip over to the uphill side. Because the uphill, you got to remember, these rangefinders are giving you cuts the same uphill and downhill. So if I go, I've got this one at 80, 80 yards, 12 degrees. The rangefinder is dead on. If I go 80 at 18 degrees, the rangefinder is 1.5%. But, but instead of cutting from the rangefinder, you are now adding to the rangefinder. Okay. Whereas if we're downhill, you got to cut off the rangefinder. Okay. So now we bump it up to 29 degrees. Now you're adding 2%. So on the flip side, where we were over at 30 degrees, we were, what were we cutting? Three, we're, we're cutting 3% off the rangefinder. We're adding 2%. So you got a 5% difference there. That's a four yard difference, you know, from the center. Is that something down, that's held true for you whether is it always less shooting down and always add more shooting up or does it depend on the rangefinder and the math it's doing no it's all doing cosine every damn one of them okay Hmm. and i you know when you get to like 35 degrees which i can think of several animals that i've shot at 35 degrees i mean i was in kodiak a couple years ago 37 degrees um i shot and missed the biggest mule deer of my life because I trusted the freaking rangefinder, and I knew it. I had the cut chart on my on my arm. It just happened fast. The rangefinder told me 81. I shot and shot him right to the top of the back. And you go back to my charts, and I figure the rangefinder told me. And these aren't even close because the rangefinder cut was it was 37 degrees, but the rangefinder was cutting it to 81. So I'm guessing, just off the top of my head, I'm guessing that must have been a a 90 yeah let me see hold on a second here i can tell you what it was it was mm. probably 101 yards is what it was it's 101 102 yards but you're talking an eight percent difference now when you bump up to 35 degrees you're talking about eight percent that you have to add on an uphill shot okay that's a lot that's yeah that's six yards you have to add on an uphill shot and and so most guys will just go out in the field and they'll they'll, they'll miss an animal and they just think it was them and and the one thing that, and I told, you know, I, I'm good friends with Levi Morgan, of course, he's on our staff. And I mean, I told him before he went up on his sheep hunt, doll sheep hunt, I said, man, you really should take this cut chart and just go out and play with it a little bit because I'm I'm just telling you this stuff's way off and I'd hate to see you, you know, miss a shot of a lifetime because, you know, you just weren't aware of it. Mm-hmm. And I learned this stuff training for these extreme field archery tournaments over in, I go to one over in Wales and Belgium and you know, I got my butt kicked and well, I didn't get my butt kicked badly. The first one, I just, I learned something every time. And every time I go out, I learn something else. And, uh, if a guy's going to go out and do it for a hunting application, what I normally do 
if you're just doing it for hunting application, I would say what your max distance, say your max distance is 100 yards. I would find different slopes, and I might find a slope, find them as steep as you can get them. What do you think you're going to be hunting in? So I have a slope, say, that's 35 degree average. Okay, I'll shoot it. If I was going out just for my hunting bow, I would shoot at 80. I would shoot at 180, 60, um, and 40, and 20. Okay, and I would go on and I would I would range it. I would. The problem if you range it and you're not prepared, you you could actually miss the target. So I use Archer's Advantage a lot too. Is a it's a software program and their cut charts that they produce on their on their program are are closer, so they'll get you on target, but they're still not. Can you explain like what the difference is there? Like what are they doing different than cosine? Like what is the difference? Why is cosine not accurate? And how can you be more formulaic about figuring what is accurate? Well, yeah, I wish I could figure out a perfect scenario. I just don't think it exists. Um, mm-hmm. I just don't think there's a, enough. I think it's just a math. I think it's math. I just think somebody, you know, like I say, with most problems in any business is somebody high enough doesn't give a crap enough. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> and, and that's really where it is. You, the whole industry is dumbed down to the 30 yard bow hunter. Okay. They're dumbed down at 30 yard bow hunter. Cause that's the majority of the market. And that's what everybody wants to appease. It doesn't really help the Western guy that much. Um, I was actually set up to work with Leopold and, and build one of these things many years ago when we got bought by, by Vista or we got bought by Bush now. And that kind of like became a little bit of a conflict of interest. And I've offered my help to Bush now a few times and they don't seem to be too jazzed up about doing anything. So um, I did notice that the new full draw rangefinder from, from uh, Leopold that's coming out has archer's advantage because i told them to go work with perry from archer's advantage i said the guy understands it better than anybody but that being said i still think there's some stuff in there that you know his stuff's a lot closer i mean because yeah. he factors in the launch angle and the time of flight he's a he's got a formula that he factors the trajectory in and this new rangefinder they're coming out with i guess has a a way for you to put your peep height in your peep to scope measurement which is what we use for calculating that stuff your your arrow it gives you some parameters to adjust speed adjustments so that you can actually try to get it you know more perfect because when i build these charts i go back in and i figure out on the archer's advanced cut chart so where i was telling you at 35 degrees let's just go back to this so i said 35 degrees uphill you'd have to add eight percent right mm-hmm. the arch the arch's advantage now eight eight percent of 80 yards is 6.4 yards, right? Archer's advantage is only 2.2 yards off. Okay, so it's closer, mm-hmm. but it's still not right. Okay. Um, you know, I've, I've worked at, you know, I, I have a, you know, large new staff gold tip, and I've got several guys on the staff that, you know, Kyle Douglas here won Vegas last year. In the men's brutal glass he's a got a shop up in i think brigham city area but he shot several deer and, and i told him kind of same thing and he just learned that hey well i got a steep 35 degree downhill i just aim at the bottom of the valley and if i got an uphill one then i aim at the top of the back and that's that's crude and it'll probably work but it's compensating yeah yeah the more you the more you practice and the more you document what you practice the more you're going to be able to come with a surgical solution, you know, I've had, 
I've done this. I've given my charts to a couple guys and I had sheep tags over in Colorado and they went out missing on a missing spree for the first week until they, uh, I reset the charts to them and said, dude, you should really use these because they're going to get you in the kill zone. They may be a little bit off with the speed of your boat, but they're going to be way closer than anything else you got. Yeah. So you're building your cut charts on your experience. You know, you're verifying it with your setup, but then they do maybe not perfectly translate, but are also applicable to then you hand that off to somebody else. And obviously there's, there's some difference in variables, but they're still probably going to be more accurate than just angle compensation range finding. Yeah. And what I'm looking for is something quick. Okay. Cause I've been in a situation where I had, a, I had a big mill there, a 200 inch deer one time. I had him at a hundred and I think he was 102 or 105 or something like that. Just put a shot that I'm very cautious about, you know, Things got to be right. I know if I'm off a yard, that's bad. And I got this cut chart here, and I got all my data, but it's just, it's, it's just. My, I look at it, and I'm freezing. You know, I don't, I can't. It when the when the when the yardage or the cut or the the angle falls between, you know, in middle between two numbers because the chart's only every five. I'm a, I'm aware enough that of how much that matters that it, it it makes me freeze. Most guys just put one in the air and they hit or they wouldn't you know and uh i i just not that way uh so i gotta have a surgical quick solution so what i've done is i i make a chart for my arm that's kind of graduated so i told you i only shoot that in 80 or 180 60 50 40 well i'll have that eight eight or that that on on my arm in a in a usually on my uh we call it my <laughs> arm guard mm-hmm. uh, and I'll have it laminated and I'll have an uphill and a downhill section. And I, what I'll do is I'll, I'll grab that information off there and I'll graduate it very, very quickly. Okay. So my cut chart for hunting will read maybe uh, 3% at 80, 2.5% at 60, 2% at, Forty, and so I'll be able to quickly look at the angle and about the percentage of it's off. If I'm within, if I'm within one uh, percent at eighty, that's good enough to kill any animal. Okay, that's only that's less than a yard. You know, if you're shooting fairly quick, that's only you know a couple inches, you know, two or three inches. So that's that's good enough to kill an animal, and it's quick. So I can look at my, I can look at the, the angle in my rangefinder. I can look at my chart and I keep my, I keep, and I, and I do this off of, this is why when I go out and shoot these slopes and I, I want the line of sight distance, I want the, the range finder distance, and then I want to know what it's shot in for, and then I'll, fix, I'll, fix, I'll figure all this other stuff off that data. Now, I do that because I use that information for, for target and for hunting, okay? For hunting, you may be only concerned with what the rangefinder cut is and the adjustment to that. Okay. Right. So if you if you go out and range, the problem with if you only do it that way, then you don't actually learn how far it's off at at the at the given yardage too. You know what I'm saying? At the actual yardage, mm-hmm. you're only you're just walking up and saying this this range. There's no there's no there's no learning aspect to that really. So you're better off if you do a line of sight range change the range finder over to the bow mode get your cut write that down shoot it in for what it actually shoots in for and when you do these shoot-ins 
if you're going to go out and shoot this in, I recommend you just shoot it a line, you know, take a mm -hmm. one inch wide black or white line, whatever shows on your target. And, and don't try to shoot it at a circle because you'll get a lot of false data shooting at a circle. Um, shoot it at a line because you know whether you broke in the middle of the line, above the line, or below the line. You can get a much faster consensus that way. Um, in fact, when I when I sight in my hunting bows, I actually have found that I I shoot way better groups and get way better uh, accuracy if I shoot at a rectangle. So I'll take a rectangle. Uh, out to a hundred yards, um, it's usually about five by seven, five by eight, and then I paint the outside of it black, an edge, and then I can see my pin inside of it. And so my mind is not circles give too much feedback, right? They get they create target panic. Hmm. But I find I find when I shoot a rectangle that I go up and down, left to right, and so I center up on it a lot better. Hmm. So, not to get off on a tangent, but no, um, that's super that's fascinating. Gold. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I did that I years ago. Yeah, oh, good. And if I back up further, say I want to get marks out to 100, 120, 130, uh, I got to increase the size of that target because my pin will cover too much of that up. And you know, one of the most critical components for me to shoot accurate at distance is how I see my pin on the target. And I doctor my pins up, and I. I use a black gold uh, hunting site and I normally run five or six pins on a movers. So I have the options when, when I, when it, you know, like I said before, things happen fast. Okay. So I want the option. My pins are normally set 30 to 80 or 30 to 90. And that way I have the option of shooting pins quick if I need to, but if I have the time, I can dial it, make a precise shot, you know, aiming exactly where I want to hit. Um, you know, and that's, that's a, that's a, you know, you guy, I, I see a lot of guys running, talking about one single pin movers. I, I quit shooting single pin movers uh, after my first doll sheep uh, hunt. One, one of the first doll sheep I ever hunt, I ever had. I, I, I snuck up on this sheep, and this is the year right. You know, Bushnell first came out with that first right laser rangefinder, and I had one, and I didn't know what was wrong with it at the time, but I knew if I added ten percent to it, it was right. I had it on meters, is what what happened, but. Um, but I sneak up on this sheep, and I mean, it's the most perfect shot ever. He's overlooking his vista, 48 yards. I add my four yards to it, and I blew a chunk of hair off the top of his back. And I was just sick, because I don't, I don't miss those kind of shots. Even 30 years ago, I don't miss those kind of shots. And uh, he jumps up, and he doesn't know what happened. He run over about 10 yards and stopped. And I was just like, my pin set. I just kind of raised high and shot and I ended up clipping his ear. And I'm like, I was just sick. I was like, I had no idea what 10 yards was. I had no, no gauge for what 10 yards was, you know, with this single pin. And, and, uh, uh ever since then I've, I went from one pin to three pins and I got myself in a situation where I needed another pin to make a quicker shot and didn't have it. <laughs> and then slowly, three pins turned into five now after hunting Nebraska last year that five pins turned into six and it's like <laughs> uh, it's like and you just sometimes whatever I can whatever pins I can fit in the housing is what I'm using and then I, the pin that I'm using for the mover I put right down next to my level where I can see the level mm. but but what I started with there was one of the most important things for distance is how cleanly I see my pin okay yeah if so, I have a real big splash pin I hate it so I'll take that black gold sight and I'll take some duct tape and I'll cover 
all the fiber optics up with duct tape, okay? An OD green duct tape. And then most of the time when you're walking around the middle of the day, any, most, and, and you're talking like the last 20 minutes of daylight or but, but in the morning, you may need to peel a little bit of it, that tape back and a little bit more light in. But you want to be able to see your pins just bright enough to aim with, okay? Because if you get them too bright, then you can't see anything that's past them. Mm-hmm. And, and you can't precisely aim with them either. And you'll, if you've got pins coming left or right, what will happen is, is your pin's brighter. It's basically going to make the head of the pin further to the left. Okay, so you're going to hit to the right. So if, if you have it, and, and that's especially true as you get back further, you know, all those little things start to make, you know, a bigger difference. I never even thought about that, how there's that little bit of offset, but I can totally see that with uh, with where that burst or that glare kind of is on that pin. Yeah, so when we shoot tournament archery, see, I, we use, a, you know, I use a 15,000th blue fiber. And there's something about blue when you look at it through a, through a clarifier peep sight, it just knocks the edges off of it, and it, it looks really clean. And... Uh, it, we use an LP light, which is a battery pack that allows us to change the brightness. There's 20 stages of brightness for that thing. So I can make it look just the way I want. Well, that's number one, it's not legal in a lot of hunting places and it's, it's not real practical in a hunting woods either. Yeah. You know, it's just like you, you know, yeah, I aim a little bit better with a lens, but I would never hunt with one cause I don't want to deal with it getting dirty. So what do you, what do you do for color choice on your, and I know this varies cause some guys see, colors better than others and all that but for you how do you structure your color on your five or six pins on a hunting site well number one thing is that 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 my mover pin the bottom pin my long distance pin is always green okay Okay. i always see green better uh without a clarifier and then i i really if i could i would make every one of them green because i don't see any colors for the longest time the color spectrums most people's eyes will see green the best um I see red horrible. Okay. I used to, uh, but uh, now I have a, in October last year, I had a, a lens transplant in my right eye. So I have a trifocal lens implant in my right eye. And the greatest thing about that is, is I can see my pin better than I've ever seen in my life. My hunting pins are a little different though. I see a little bit of a halo on. Um, so I really have to control the light. If they get it's just different. Like I, I can't look at a ten thousand pin and you know, hardly pick it up anymore. So everybody's eyes are a little bit different. Um, I remember seeing guys in tournaments that shot these crazy setups, like an eight power with, and we'd all look at his side and we'd see four pins, and he'd look at us. Well, I don't see four pins. I see one. Well, it's just something to do with his eyes and how his his eyes are probably like my eye is now with this new lens in. So. But for most most part, what I do is to break them up. I want to be able to, you know, like right now I have six pins in there. So I have green, green, yellow, green, green, yellow. Okay. So 30 is yellow, 40 is green, 50 is green, 60 is uh, yellow, 70 and 80 are uh, green. And, and I all, all I have to do is I have to remember is what the yellow ones are. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then I can make a quick a quick move on them. You know, and, and I, I have black, the nice thing about black gold is they will, they'll custom make your pin colors the way you want when you buy one of their, their higher end sites, especially that pro site they have. The pro site they have has really awesome pins on it. I mean, it's, I, I wasn't overly impressed with the pins they had before that because they were kind of square. 
and they're more durable that way, but they're more square. And so when you get in certain lighting conditions, it didn't look like you've seen the ball on the end of the pen. Yeah. You know, and I, I want to see a real thin pin coming down with a ball on it. I mean, what I see is very critical to how well I can shoot at distance. Yeah. You said earlier you doctor your pins up. Is that just everything you mentioned or is there something else unique that you do or kind of aftermarket? You know, before Black Gold had this pro site with these new pins, um, yeah, I would take a Dremel tool to my pins and I would, uh, I would clean them up and make them really fine and, and doctor them up a little bit to where I seen that really good ball right on the end. Mm, just kind of shape it. Yeah. Just shape it a little bit. Just, that, that I've always been that way about equipment, you know. There's always a better way. You gotta just it's the fine details all compounded together that make good into great. <laughs> the, what so you talked about you're you're putting duct tape over the fiber optics, you're shaping pins, or at least you used to. Like what other it, it doesn't have to be on a site, but what other things do you do to a bow when you get it? You know, besides like the normal tune, that type of deal, like what's the Tim Gillingham unique tweak on bow setup. Well, there's there. It depends on the bow, you know. And one of the great things about working with Bowtech now is is they've taken some of the advice that we've given them and made it to where we don't have to really do much. Okay. One of the first things I talked to Bowtech about was limb pockets. Okay. When I first started coming there, you know, when I first started shooting there, what four years ago, and I said, man, you guys have had great limb pockets in the past on your destroyer, on your you know, your specialist 38. I mean, these things were awesome. I said, you got the fundamentals of a good bow is the limb pocket. You don't want to fall on your bow or, or have something shift around just from shooting because, because the company built a crappy limb pocket on a bow. And a, and a lot of guys don't know how to identify that. They just say, well, I spent a thousand bucks on a bow. It's, it's perfect. Well, that's definitely not the case. There's a lot of crappy bows out there for a thousand bucks. And uh, so I, I don't do a lot. I put custom strings on them. You know, some depends on the, the bow manufacturer and, and how good a strings they are. The main thing I look for is, number one, I want 452X material. Uh, 452X BCY material has Vectrin in it. The importance of Vectrin is it's not temperature, it's very temperature stable. I've had strings in the past built out of 100% Dyneema, and there's lots of materials floating around 100% Dyneema. And what I noticed is that they would change with temperature and almost it's imperceivable to you. You could mark your cams all you want, but you couldn't perceive it, but you'd get up in the morning when it was cooler and it'd be hitting under the dot and by noon it'd be in the middle of the dot. And you don't want to deal with that in a hunting situation, you know, at all or any type of archery situation as far as that goes. So, you know, little things like that. I mean, you know, I get all my strings from threads, bow strings. They, you know, a couple, a couple that have a, used to own a pro shop and now they have a string company, you know, they're, they're pro level shooters. And, and that, that typically breeds better quality products, you know, it's that, you know, they, they pay attention to the detail, you know, you go buy a, a Matthews factory bow and you get a giant center serving on it. Well, guys will call into us and they, they say, Hey, do you have a knock to fit this serving? <laughs> and I always give them the spiel of, you know, a knock mold costs $20,000 and a serving costs a dollar that you have your bowstring reserved to fit the actual knock. And when you go to a company like Threads, you simply can tell them, hey, I shoot a gold tip uh, airstrike with the factory knock, and they'll build the bowstring perfect to that knock. And they have the expertise to do so because, I mean, they've been shooting their whole life. Mm -hmm. So 
or a lot of times you get these companies, they'll, they'll, the boat companies will have an engineer, but if that engineer is not a shooter, they'll just go off the AMO specs and not make any adjustments to AMO specs. And you got to kind of know what, what the trends in the industry are, you know, as far as knock sizes and stuff like that. So, um, both you have a stabilizer. Do you have a tip for knowing that you have proper knock fit? Yeah, actually. Uh, proper knock fit, um, the way I identify proper knock fit is you should be able to, number one, you should be able to knock the arrow and you should be able to turn the uh, the string without pushing the arrow around. You should be able to twist the string. Okay. You should be able to pull the string back. On a hunting bow, you know, I would say, and, and, and the thing that is, the heavier the arrow, the less critical the string fit is. The lighter the arrow, the more critical it is that it comes off very cleanly. And so typical rule of thumb is you draw the string back a half to a full inch, let go, and that knock should cleanly come off. Okay, okay. you don't want jerking and bouncing, you know. If it if it's just, you know, you let go and it goes, you know, it doesn't come off, you got you got a problem. You need to lighten the knock bit. <laughs> okay. And then the, the tight end knock that's inside of your loop, you, know, you can go sloppy loose and they'll group really well. You go too tight, and they'll string all over the place. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to wind a little bit. We hit on angles and distances a lot. There's so much good information there. I know you hit on wind when you're talking about um, some of those arrows, can, uh, arrow considerations in terms of weight. But it, in addition to arrows, what about just shooting in the wind? Um, just help guys there on you know things to look for, things to understand, understand arrow flight, and we can you know get into arrow setup as well. But just all about shooting in the wind. Where do you start with that specifically for hunting? There's nothing that beats shooting in the wind other than just getting out and shooting in the wind. I mean, uh, I've made an archery career of, of triggering the shot like probably 90% of bow hunters actually activate their release. Back tension releases are horrible for the wind. Uh, any type of surprise shot, you're just asking for problems in the wind. Um, and that's a direct correlation if you go into rifle shooting. If you look at the top-level rifle positional shooters, they'll tell you the same dang thing. Um, it's just in archery, you know, everybody beats target panic by going to a surprise shot, but that just don't hold up very well in the wind. Um, but again, nothing, you know, you just gotta, you just gotta get out in the wind when the wind's blowing and, and stabilizers are huge in the wind. I mean, you go out there, everybody wants to pack a PSC carbon air up the mountain. When it comes time to make the shot, that's 20 mile an hour crosswind, they're hosed, mm-hmm. you know, that just, you know, is not realistic. So a good stabilizer system is really critical in the wind. Okay. Uh, and I always tell guys to shoot as heavy a weight bow as they're willing to pack. Okay. You know, there's trade-offs, you know, and all that stuff. You know, we, we build stabilizer systems on, on hunting bows. It's, it's really just a trade-off, you know, for portability. You know, we're not, we're not getting the most perfectly stabilized bow simply because we're not willing to, you know, you know, pack around what makes it shoot just that 15% better. You're willing to give up that 15% for the portability. But, uh, you know, I, I run a, on my hunting bows, I've been running this new micro X counter slide for B singer. It kind of sits off the side of the bow. It's, it's, uh, very efficient at, at, at counteracting the weight of the quiver full of arrows on the right side of the bow. And, uh, you can add as much weight front and back and slide that thing forward and back to get the, you know, 
the balance the way you, you know you want for holding and for you know to cancel any negative reactions the bill might have but uh that's pretty critical you know you got to get that bow you know holding naturally level you don't want to be forcing the bow to level you know sight leveling is uber critical uber critical when you're dealing with uh you know extreme hunting mule deer hunting especially and i think a lot of guys i probably could walk around uh total archery challenge and check people's sight levels and i would i would put money on the fact that 85 percent of them are on level can you do a five minute walkthrough on leveling your bow sight um yeah i'll just do a quick one up you can go over to Hamsky's website and get some information, but the fact of the matter is, is the Hamsky tool, which is what we use for virtually all site leveling, won't 100% level everything. So you need to understand different sites, especially hunting sites. These companies don't take the time to, they'll sell you a $400 site, but then they don't want to teach you how to level it. Okay. And uh, so what you really have to understand about site leveling is, is what the bubble does for you. Okay. The bubble is simply just an indicator. It tells you the position of the first axis. The first axis in, in a pin site is the rack of pins, okay? And the best way I like to illustrate this is if you look at a spot hog site, for example, a spot hog has a wire down the middle of it, right? You guys familiar with spot hog? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. And some of the Hamsky tool was, was, was designed, you know, off of that idea. Um, so you have a wire. Well, that wire that the li- pins line up with, becomes the first axis so it's important when those pins are that when that level bubble's reading plumb that those pins are perfectly straight up and down okay mm-hmm. it's also important if you got to stay a single pin movable that when i level the pin that the the the, uh, the track that the site moves up and down is perfectly plumb that's what the bob bubble's job is okay but it it, it becomes a little trickier when you start incorporating five pins on a movable, because now you have two first axes. Okay. So the pins and the vertical track have to be parallel to each other. Some sites have adjustments to it. Some don't. Okay. And so, so that's the importance of the bubble. So you have to have a way to actually verify that your first axis, whether it be the pins or the, you know, the, the vertical, uh, first axis that your, you know, your, your site unit slides up and down is, is perfectly plumb. And usually you can clamp, if you can, the best way is to clamp that Hamsky tool on there. You got to make sure it's perfectly flush and flat. Okay. And that becomes a level. If you can fit a torpedo level on there, um, somewhere on a flat surface to, to verify when that surface is perfectly straight up and down, then you can set your bubble for your second axis. Okay. Once you have that set, then the only importance of third axis is is we do not want the bubble to lie to us, okay? That bubble has to run perpendicular to the plane of motion, okay? Not the bowstring, not the riser, not anything. If you had to level to anything, it would be the path of the arrow, and that's pretty hard to do, right? <laughs> but the reason, the reason that you, uh, let's go, let's go back, okay? So, so the third axis is you won't want the bubble to lie to you, right? So the third axis has to be done at full draw because it has to account for all the torque that you're going to put on the bow when you draw the bow back. You know, anything that takes that that bubble out of perpendicular to the plane of motion has to be accounted for. 
Okay, it can't be done in a vice. It can't be done in a. It, it could possibly be done in a machine like a shooting machine, but you still have to measure the amount of torque load that's being put on the bow at full draw. So the Hamsky tool puts a pin that runs parallel to the first axis. Well, you have to be able to look at the site and assess whether you have that option available to you or not. Okay. So on a pin side, I would simply just take and, and use a, I use a level or a plumb bob. I typically just take a level three, three or a six, five foot level. And on the back of my garage door, I made a Sharpie line, right? And you'll draw the bow back and I'll put the rack of pins, the point of the pins right on the, on the line, right? Mm-hmm. And if my bubble's reading perfectly plumb, then I know my, my third axis is right. If I, you know, as you draw the bow back and point downhill, uh, that's going to tell you whether that bubble stayed, you know, perfectly square to the, uh, the, the plane of movement from you pointing straight out and going all the way down. Okay. And if it's off, then you just simply got to adjust your third axis to make it right. Okay. If you have a five pin mover site, you have to verify that the rack of pins is parallel to the the first axis in the site. And that can be pretty tricky if you don't know what you're doing. Okay. Because a lot of these sites, you can put a level on the first axis, but not on the pins. Okay. And if I, it, it just, I, so, so you got to, <laughs> yeah, that's true. You can go out and check it. It's tricky. It really is. Uh, the simplest thing to level is a tournament site where you can just clamp the third axis tool on there. You can verify. You know, I just sit on a chair and hold the boat, you know, level and, you know, just check the bubble against the one in the site. And then I draw the bow back, put the pin on the, the line and check it that way. Where it gets tricky is with these hunting sites. You got a site like a, like a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, yeah, and then when you get done with that, one of the worst things that can happen, you know, is go watch these, these site leveling videos that we've done and stuff. And I, I've got a good one I did with uh, Next Level Archery, and I'll be doing some more here in the future. Um, but uh, the next step is you want to set your comfort level, okay? And I, what I do is I stand on flat ground, draw the bow back with my eyes closed, load the quiver full of arrows if that's the way you're going to hunt with it. And uh, if that bow, you know, for the most part, most people are going to want that bow to sit at a little bit of a right cant, okay? Because that quiver, number one, is going to be pulling the bow to the left. That's where having a stabilizer system like that counterslide, where you can get it further away from the bow and hold everything straight up and down. But, you you know, it works quite well. But you don't want to, uh, you don't want to force that, you know, okay? You want it to sit where it naturally sits in your hand. And uh, that's where you make your first axis adjustment. Now, for people who understand first axis of adjustment, first axis is where the, the, the horizontal bar meets the vertical bar on your site, okay? Because the bubble is slaved to the actual pins or the first axis, you can, anywhere back behind there, you can move it and it's not gonna change anything because when you level the bubble, it's gonna make the first axis straight and down. So, on a black gold site, you simply loosen those two screws and, and you can tip it left or right. You know, you tip it to the left if you wanted to have on the top, if you wanted to 
a little bit of a right camp. But you, what, the whole premise is you want to be able to make that adjustment to where you naturally hold the ball level. Okay. A site like a spot hog, for example, does not have that adjusted at all. So what I would do with a spot hog is I would put a washer underneath the bottom screw on my sight block where it mounts to the bow. So that would basically make that adjustment to where I could hold that bow with a little bit of a right cam. And my first axis in my sight would be straight up and down. Are you confused? No, no, I'm tracking. I've just, I've never thought about doing that with kind of that natural, like I was, you were talking, I was really into shooting a rifle and kind of that natural point of aim. Right. Um, well, I've only well, ever. A, a rifle's different. No, I just, I mean like from a high level conceptually, how you're talking about, you just want that natural level um, for you and how you're holding and how you're there. I, that's all I meant by natural point of aim. It's just right. you with the, the same bow thing and... happens with a rifle. Yeah. The same thing happens with a rifle. As soon as the recoil happens, it's going to natural. it's going to uncoil, you know, it's just like coiling a spring and it's going to uncoil. So if you don't get your natural point of aim with a rifle, you're putting pressure on it. And as soon as you pull the trigger, it's going to recover back and you'll start stringing them the same. You'll do the same exact thing with a bow. And, you know, you'll get people that argue that the first axis has to be level with the riser, has to be level with the arrow. You see guys sell all kinds of gizmos and gadgets to, you know, to set up bows and levels. In 35 years, I've never put a level on an arrow to tune a bow in my life. You know, it makes no difference. Um, the reason that you can put a cant in your bow and a cant in your first axis, and I will concede, you will get an error, but that error is at two yards. Okay, on a well-tuned bow. By by two yards, you'll hit about a shaft to the left. But by three yards, this fletching has taken control. And that arrow has no choice but to fall in a vertical plane from that point. Okay. It's only going to fall vertical. So I don't buy into the whole walk-back tuning and all that garbage. Because walk-back tuning is for people that can't paper tune. Okay, it's just saying, hey, my tune is good enough that, hey, my arrow stabilized by the time it hit 10 yards, and now it's falling in a perfect line from that point going forward. It's just a very, like, random way of tuning a bow. <laughs> and paper tells no lies. I've never had a bow that had clearance, was paper tuned, and had the right fletching on it that wouldn't group. Have you ever done that, Steve, first axis? Like, I've, I've just always done it fix, you know, with the with the riser and all that. I've never yeah, even considered my, it. Yeah, my with... go-to is... Put a three foot level limb to limb, and then match that up to the to make sure the site was yeah, doing the same. Yeah. But the limb the limb pockets, there's no guarantee that that has any That's... any guarantee that you're to your first axis. You're just you're right. assuming that everything's machined perfectly, and that first axis in the site is lined up with the riser, and that's a total assumption. Okay. And it doesn't. Is the it... fact of the matter is, with everything straight up and down like that if you feel like you're having to tip the bow back to the left to level it every time you're coiling the spring, you're, you're out of your natural point of aim. Hmm. Okay. So you can make that first axis adjustment and do whatever you want with it because the bubble slave to the first axis. Okay. Interesting. And every time you level the bubble, it's going to put it back in exactly the same launch position. Okay. So there's, there's no merit to that at all. Yeah. I've, shot a hard can't i shot a hard can't in my first axis for as long as i can remember 
So it's, it still holds true that canting your bow from, I mean, I guess once you set that first axis, because you could still can't right from that to hit. Like, that's a technique I've used shooting in the wind is, is can't like half a bubble well, over yeah, to yeah. adjust for that. Well, yeah, yeah, because the level, yeah. when you level the bubble, that's the mean, right? That's the middle. Right. Okay. So if you go to half a bubble right from there, you're going to hit over. I'm not a bubbler, and I'll tell you why I'm not a bubbler. <laughs> two, two things, really. Do you know how much a half a bubble is at 20 yards, 30 yards, 50 yards, 80 yards, 100 yards? No, yeah, not, I mean, it gets me in the ballpark okay. of a kill shot, but yeah, yeah not, not within inches, yeah. It's, it's a slight. I can I can make a much better assessment as to, okay, the, the wind's blowing that. I think the arrow's going to move six inches, okay? Hold six inches left, drain it, okay? That mule deer I told you I shot over there with that 515-grain arrow, at uh, in a 25 mile hour crosswind, I held in the middle of his butt. Okay, and the reason is because I knew because I shoot an NAP kill zone, I knew all I had to do is hit him anywhere from the back of the rib cage all the way to the front shoulder, and he was dead. So I had, you know, I had an 18 inch window there to hit, mm-hmm. and, and so. I, I can just knew from just experience about how much that arrow was going to move just from shooting out in the window. And the heavier that arrow was, the less it was going to move. But that being said, if I had just a heavy arrow and it knocked my speed down to six, 260, that'll, the time of flight's a factor too in, in wind drift. So, you know, fast and heavy is a good thing. How much, uh, have you seen a difference between say like a four millimeter shaft and a six millimeter shaft in wind drift? Is there any measurable distance there at 80 yards, hundred yards? I live in the United States. We use inches. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, yes, there, there, there is a distance. I mean, when you get to about the 100, 120, there's a, there's a little bit of difference. And what it really is, it's just like BC on a bullet. The fatter arrow slows down faster. Some of that has to do with how much vein, a lot of that has to do with how much vein you put on the arrow, okay? Uh-huh. And that, the amount of vein you put on the arrow is based on what kind of broadhead you got to steer, okay? So, yeah, all that stuff comes into the equation. You know, if you if you were shooting, say, a, a four millimeter shaft and you had, you wanted to shoot a fixed blade and you shot four fletch, two inch high profile veins, and then I shot a, a six millimeter shaft and I shot a thorn mechanical where i only needed four 1.75 veins the, the six millimeter would outperform it hands down mm. makes sense just because that drag factor yeah it's just it's just what you know you you gotta it, it's all about velocity loss right mm-hmm. if you watch an arrow in the wind you're going to watch it do most of its drift in the last 20 percent of its flight because that's where it slowed down mm-hmm. Man, I, we could keep you on here all day. I'm just like soaking stuff up. I've even been challenged with some of the things I do and <laughs> need to do that <laughs> differently. Too. Like I'm excited. I want to make sure we hit, uh, you know, beyond gear and setup and tuning. I, I'm, I was curious to talk to you about shooting positions because that's another thing that kind of came to mind to me of, you know, bow hunting for mule deer is the potential of, Yes, angle up and down, but even footing, even potentially kneeling type scenarios. Um, yeah, I just I want to hear about that and kind of what you do to compensate maybe for certain positions. 
Well, no, there's no compensation for practice. If you're shooting NRL 22 or you're going to go out and shoot PRS, positions are everything, okay? Learning how to get into those positions, learn how to get stable in a certain position because, yeah, 90% of your hunting shots are not backyard practice shots. They're, they're kneeling. They're, they're a lot of kneeling shots, a lot of squatting shots. I mean, and you have to check yourself a little bit, you know, your heart's racing, you know. Nothing, nothing helps me more than shooting tournaments as far as when my heart's racing to know what to do. Number one thing you're going to do when you get, when you get jangled is you're going to collapse. Okay. Your body loses muscular function and you, and you start to collapse. Okay. That's the importance of have your drawing set, right? Cause if you're shooting too short of drawing, you're using muscle. And as you start to collapse, you're going to get bad arrow flight and bad left and right. And so when I, I, I just remember a few years back, I shot this elk and he charged right in on me. And it was just, I was shaking. Like you couldn't believe it. And the only thing I could remember was, this is just like when you're in a feeder tournament, man. And it's in this, you're in a shoot off and you start shaking. Well, the one thing I've learned is I just have to focus on pulling hard. Okay. I have to focus on keeping that forearm perfectly in alignment, pulling down the back of the arrow. Okay. And that's the visual that you want to have is that you're pulling directly down the line of the back of the arrow. And, you know, if you're under the gun like that, that's probably in, 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 in any position, really. Okay. That should be your focus. Um, we, we, uh, I shot a tournament over in Belgium and we were shooting 55 degrees out of this bunker up on this target. And I kept hitting to the left and it drove, I couldn't figure it out. And finally, I, I went home with just the vendettas to figure out a solution to this problem. Because what was happening is when you get out of position, you're not pulling as hard. Therefore you're changing your third axis. <laughs> okay. So I came up with, I was shooting a PSE dominator at the time and I put a sight on the back of the riser because it had an ambidextrous riser. And I put a sight that had two wires that I could actually put one wire on each side of my, 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 uh, my sight pin. And when I got out of position, I could see that that pin was sitting over to the side on those wires. So I just pull a little bit harder to go right back to the middle. And I mean, I would just start piping right down the middle. So it's kind of like a, just a double check people, like a rear sight on a rifle almost. Hmm. But when you get out of position, when you're shooting those steep up or downhill shots, that's where you got to, you know, you want to make sure your draw links, not, not number one, you want to stay hard against the wall. That's the one thing you got to focus on. That's why when, when we shoot archery, we teach T form, like you draw straight out and then you bend at the hips. I don't necessarily draw like that a hundred percent of the time, but I'm very aware that I need to make, my, you know, I need to have good pressure against the back wall and I need to be pulling down the back of the arrow. Okay. Cause if I'm not, and it's hard when you get 35, 40 degrees, that's where it gets real ugly. You know, those aren't, I mean, I, I mean, I make a lot of shots like that in, in hunting with, and often, you know, high country mule deer hunting and stuff. I mean, those are hard shots and you better have all your ducks in a row from shooting to cuts to, you know, everything. Hmm. What, what do you use other than like just finding natural angles to shoot at, like going back to cuts and even this positional stuff, any advice for guys could try to replicate some of that um, in terms of finding ways to shoot at angles? Is that just a matter of finding the right country? Yeah. Crawl up on the roof of your house. Yeah. <laughs> Put a target on the roof, buy a cherry picker or, or run a cherry picker. I did that one year after that tournament. I, 
I rented a cherry picker. We have one over here on my on my addition, and I kept it for two more days. And I put a target up in the cherry picker, and I was I was mainly working on these short, steep angle cuts. Yeah. But yeah, you get up get about forty foot up at a little teeny cherry picker, and with the wind blowing, and see how much you're moving. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's different there because you're kind of leaning over the edge. But uh, I mean, you just you just got to try to put yourself in in every situation you can. You know, I was talking to John Stallone about uh, he had an ibex hunt down in the Florida mountains in New Mexico, and a couple other friends have had that. And the shots that you're talking about are just stupid steep. You know, and you better just get out and shoot that kind of stuff because that stuff's tough. That stuff's just really, really difficult. And, you know, it separates the men from the boys, I say. Yeah. But it's the one type of, like, archery where you can literally outwork your competitors because most people aren't willing to do what it takes. Mm. You know? Makes sense. And you got to be careful, too. One one of the cautions I'll give people too is especially back East guys, when they're coming out West, you better take a target to camp with you and you better take extra sight tapes and you, and your Allen wrenches to camp with you because your sights will not be on. Okay. When you jump that much elevation, you know, when you go from sea level or a thousand foot up to four or even eight or nine or 10,000, your sight tape's going to change. Probably the worst that I've seen is I live at 4,500 feet, okay? And the worst that I ever see is when I go to Kodiak Island. The air density in Kodiak Island is just thicker than thick. I'll lose four, I'll lose four yards on my sight tape from 20 to, or from 30 to 100. That's how oh, much wow. slower that arrow is. So you just, I make sure I have a target or I, I, I arrange to have a target uh in camp because it's just it, it ain't worth it i mean i mean you spend all that money going to hunt and you're not you're not prepared your your, your equipment's not sighted in so it's no different you got you know guys shoot long-range rifles or something you got to know the and the nice thing about rifles there's people high enough that have cared enough to actually put all those parameters into ballistic equations into software that you can actually use it's just not available in archery yet. Um, what do you because see sh- shooting at? What do you see shooting Tim at uh, forty five hundred? And say you go up uh, up the Wasatch and you're shooting at, at nine thousand or ten thousand. Are you seeing four yards at that distance? Well, you know, not really. You know what? That was kind of funny last year. I had a mountain goat hunt last year, so I sighted in here at forty or forty five hundred feet, and we got up to camp, and I took a target and. Man, it's we were camped at eleven five, and I honestly didn't see any difference. Now, some of that has a lot to do with your arrow combination. Okay, I'm running a Pierce Tour micro diameter shaft with a glue in model thorn broadhead. Okay, in in terms of and and with target size veins, I had two point one low profile veins and a four foot. So that thing's going to be less sensitive to the air density than say if a guy was shooting, you know, three or four blazers, for example, mm-hmm. on, on a, or a high profile vein or a, or a fixed blade broadhead on, on something that had to have a lot more control or steering. So how fat that arrow is, is going to, going to have more effect on it. Um, the last time I went to Kodiak 
trying to remember what I shot for arrows. I think I shot, uh, I know I shot gold tip chaos 200s that one year and I lost four yards. Uh, and that was going, you know, basically to sea level from 4,500. But you're also talking, when you look at the air, you know, on the beach there, it's just misty and foggy and this just thick air, you know. Mm-hmm. But I've done that, I've done that before here where I went from 4,500 to 10 and I just didn't see a lot. Um, <laughs> I'm always leery because it, it make, doesn't make any sense to me. It's like I should see something. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's a ton. I think it's a couple inches if anything and you know on a, on a setup like mine where i'm running 300 foot a second 310 and again that, that's going to go that's going it's going to come down to the weight of your you know the weight of your arrow too i mean if you go to a real wide arrow you know air densities and stuff like that are going to probably affect them a little bit more never ceases to amaze me how simple archery can be yet then like you get into the weeds and like there's just never ending questions too <laughs> yeah. okay. I live my life under the pretense that there's always a better way, you know, I mean, it may be a small right. thing. I'm always looking for, you know, for ways to be better. And, and for me, mostly archery is just work. Now I look at my bows and it's just pure work. You know, it's just, I got six bows to run and it's just a nightmare to try to keep them all running yeah. <laughs> and, and running at the level and running at the level that I need, I need to run at. Mm. So, and I'll get an idea and then I'll have to switch it over on all of them. Then I'll get, <laughs> yeah, it's, fun. it's a disease. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, Tim, man, it's been a pleasure. Um, we'll have to get you back on here. There's more stuff I want to dive into, but, uh, I don't want to keep you all day and appreciate the time you've already given us and the knowledge you shared for sure. I'm excited to, uh, to challenge some of my own thoughts and try some new stuff. And it'd be fun to report back on that as well. But if guys want to, just learn more about, you know, you've mentioned some resources in terms of videos and just maybe see some more of uh, what you have out there. What's a good resource you can point listeners to? Well, you know, you know, go to gold tips, YouTube channel, that tuning series I did on there is just extremely important. Um, uh, I mean, that's 25 years of, of tuning information there that I learned the hard way. You know, you don't have to learn that way anymore. You, you follow that stuff. You're not going to get flyers. You're going to have surgical accuracy. Um, It'll tell you when your arrow's too weak. You know, it'll tell you, you know, how to correct left tears, right tears, up tears, down tears, and and probably ways that you've never heard of. Okay, and if you if you still can't figure it out, don't be hesitate to message me on Facebook. Uh, you know, Gold Tips Arrow University. I've done lots of old videos on there. Um, one of them you want to, if as a bow hunter you want to look at is as broad as a broadhead alignment video I did. It's probably on our YouTube channel and on. Uh, Arrow University, um, building the Pierce hunting arrows. Another good one teaches you how to to start to finish. Uh, you know, build that arrow up for hunting. You know, the unique insert system and 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 the challenges that come with getting it to spin straight and getting the insert system perfectly concentric. You know, it's one of the reasons I like that thorn broadhead on that Pierce arrow because it's just a surgically accurate broadhead. I mean, it has a practice feature where it it groups like a field point, okay? It don't fly like a field point. It groups like a field point. You know, when you're doing your tuning, you need to try to do your tuning with a field point that's as long as your broadhead. And, you know, Chuck Adams come up with that many years ago with the match points, and they still sell them today, and I, I use them. You know, when I'm using a kill zone and I'm tuning my arrows and tuning each arrow, 
I use a bare match point. Okay. But don't be comfortable with the fact that the bare match point weighs the same, you know, within a grain of your thorn broadheads, they're not going to hit the same. Okay. A thorn broadhead is probably the most, one of the more aerodynamically uh, perfect mechanical broadheads on the market, but I'll lose four inches at a hundred yards to a bare match point that weighs within a grain. If you want to, if you want a broadhead that flies exactly like the field point, the one that I've found is a uh, is a uh, a Bloodsport Night Fury. Um, I think it's a very good broadhead for for mule deer and deer sized animals. I'm not sure I'd go clear to elk on it. I, I might shoot their 2.2 inch on elk, but the 1.78 flies exactly like a field point from a drag effect standpoint. Um, it, it's a super head. Um, we killed four deer on Kodiak that year with them. And I was more than impressed. Um, I I'm shooting high energy. My buddy's 27 and a half inch draw length. So both of us had great results out of it. Everybody else, everybody always wants to put me in the category. Oh yeah, you can do it because you got a long draw length. And I, I don't, I don't buy into that. I test my theories and I test, you know, a lot of guys, you know, I, I, kill zone's another broadhead I like, and I like it because it has a practice feature. Okay, it has a blade that flies exactly like the broadhead in hunt mode. And if a broadhead company doesn't offer that, I wouldn't shoot it. You got to be able to practice with what you're hunting, and if you're going to shoot just the broadhead, that becomes a royal pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. Tim, man, it's been uh, it's been great. Thanks so much for taking the time. You've got a crazy business schedule, and uh, appreciate you carving out some time to share with the audience. Uh, be sure to point folks to those resources, and uh, yeah, I'm sure the guys will get a lot out of this. Sure. As far as the site leveling side, go over to Hamsky. Hamsky's got some good videos over there. Um, I, I think one of the better videos that I did on on site leveling is with Next Level Archery. It's a little harder to find. Next level archery is no longer existence, but some of them videos are floating around on on uh, on YouTube. But that's a that's a really uh, and it's like anything you do a video and you're like, man, I should have done it this way. I can simplify it. You just learn easier ways to teach stuff over the years, you know. So yeah, huh. and I I look forward to getting going on a project this fall. I think we're going to start delving into teaching archery and putting this stuff up online and working it into a business maybe. Yeah, awesome. That'd be, that'd be amazing. Cool. Because it's, it's so hard, you know. I've done so much, and I, you know, I, yeah, I, I, it's just I, I understand where people get just deer in the headlights, and it's just they get overwhelmed. And I think video is the best way to teach it because then they can go back to it over and over and over again. Yeah, and it, it's a good resource too because you can share it, and and you just like the videos we use. Anytime I get too many questions, I make a video on it, so then I can start sharing the video. Right, exactly. So, makes my life easier. Well, that's a wrap. Tim mentioned some great resources there. Hop online, especially YouTube. There is a wealth of knowledge from Tim and videos from multiple places there. And thank you so much for tuning in. This series has been a blast. we got some more to come. So be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And if there's anything else for us directly, you can always send us an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. We'll talk to you soon.